Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time of day you're joining us on this fine Monday. Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode. Today we're talking about all things postpartum. Congratulations, your baby has now arrived. You've done your duty. And the baby is currently on your chest, skin to skin with you, just seconds after being born and taking its first breath of life. Welcome, officially, to motherhood, or as we like to call it, the postpartum period. Now, the postpartum period for women as is defined as the moment the baby and the placenta have been delivered until six weeks following the delivery. For the first one to two hours on average after delivery, the labor and delivery nurse will actually be the one watching over you to ensure that you are stable enough to move to the postpartum unit. Either a nursery nurse or a newborn transition nurse will care and look out for the baby during this time frame as well. There are a lot of things that can go wrong for both mom and baby during this time. So it truly isn't safe for one nurse alone to be watching both mom and baby. Once the labor and delivery nurse has deemed you clear to be handed over to the postpartum nurse and the baby has successfully and safely transitioned to life outside of the womb, you both will meet your new home and the accompanying staff that will care for you for the next few days. Congratulations again. That is not the last time you're going to hear that word, mind you. The second that baby comes out of your vagina, I can't tell you how many times you're going to be told, congratulations. You're probably going to be sick of that word. But here we are. The time has come and your new precious baby has arrived. But I want to talk about the not so precious aftermath that makes up the postpartum period. And I'm going to explain this in the outline of the postpartum assessment acronym that I learned in nursing school and helped me pass my boards. It's called Bubble He. Yes, you heard that right. Bubble and He. Let's get started. The postpartum assessment begins in labor and delivery and carries on throughout your stay in the hospital up until your six-week follow-up appointment with your OB-GYN. Starting things off in bubble, B as in boy, first B is for breast. The main purpose of your booby assessment in the postpartum period is to ensure engorgement does not take place, which is where the breasts are painfully full of milk. This can occur in both women who are breastfeeding and women who are strictly bottle feeding simply because milk begins to form during pregnancy. Either way, it's very important to know the signs and symptoms to watch out for and know the interventions that one can do to prevent it from happening. Typically, while you are still in recovery and labor and delivery, majority of hospitals have what we call lactation consultants, who are nurses who have dedicated their knowledge and skills to helping new mothers and newborns become more comfortable with breastfeeding. They will come and greet you in recovery and assist you with a breastfeeding session and will share with you all of the tips and the tricks in the world while simultaneously educating you on the benefits of breastfeeding. They are truly a remarkable asset to have on the patient care team because let me tell you guys, breastfeeding is hard and they are experts at it. Babies can be quite stubborn and have trouble latching, sucking, positioning themselves. They are not very bright. They just aren't poor things. They're so helpless. But the lactation consultants are not phased, not phased at all. 
I can't tell you how sweaty I would get and hurt my back from trying to help a mother breastfeed. So I can let alone imagine what it's like to be the mom breastfeeding. I couldn't even help the mom myself. But these people make it look so damn easy. I don't know how they do it. I'm just so thankful for them and their passion towards breastfeeding because at least one of us has that passion. To further explain breast assessment, let's begin by talking about breast milk formation and production. Now, a lot of women are under the impression that you automatically have milk the second the baby is born, and that is not particularly true. Milk production does begin around the midpoint of pregnancy by an increase in the hormone prolactin. Immediately after birth, however, it is not full-on breast milk that is coming out. It is actually a component called colostrum that is readily available for baby to consume. Colostrum is the early concentrated milk that is full of nutrients and disease-fighting antibodies. It provides everything that your baby needs in the early days after birth. Your baby's stomach is teeny tiny at birth, and the amounts of colostrum are actually perfect for your baby's needs, and it will transition gradually to mature breast milk once your true milk fully comes in. For most mothers, colostrum will progress into transitional milk and will come in between days two and five. Milk coming in, quote unquote, generally refers to the time when the mother notices an increased breast fullness and other signs as milk production begins to kick into full gear. This usually occurs two to three days after birth, but can take longer than three days for some. I will say from a personal experience and observation, I have noticed if you have a C-section or have had significant blood loss, milk can take longer to fully come in. And I believe that's due to the body being in a significant amount of stress from other things. Transitional milk then progresses to mature breast milk on average two weeks after delivery. So while you were in the hospital, you're not going to have that full-on fatty breast milk that you think that you're going to. It's going to be majority colostrum and transitional milk. Now, if you're a second-time mom, third-time mom, whatever, this is not your first baby, breast milk can come in. The true full breast milk can come in sooner. Uh, but on average, it it takes a like a week or two for that to fully come in. The lactation consultant is probably the first nurse who will truly assess your breast in terms of looking at shape, size, nipple appearance, and symmetry. The next woman to assess your breast will most likely be your postpartum nurse, and they will check on your breast at least once a shift. They will assess each breast by first visualizing them to assess for any redness, streaking, which can be a sign of infection, distended veins, or shiny taut skin. They will then palpate, which means to touch or press on the breast to feel the firmness, warmth, or if there is any presence of any nodules. Nodules can be a clogged milk duct, and if they are felt, she will go over with you how to massage and manually hand express this clogged duct. A question I actually got asked a lot was how can I prevent engorgement? My top five tips and advice for you, nurse frequently and on demand. 
which means if baby is acting hungry, even if they just ate 30 minutes ago, feed them again. If baby is very sleepy, wake baby up to feed them at least every two to three hours, allowing one long stretch of four to five hours at night. That's acceptable, but waking them up frequently helps keep their blood sugars at a level, at a steady level, which stimulates a hunger cue when you have a blood sugar drop. So that prevents them from getting to that point where they're going to wake up and start crying their head off. My second tip is allow baby to finish the first breast before offering the other side. Switching sides when baby pulls off or falls asleep can also help, but don't limit the baby's time at each breast. Third tip is ensure correct latch and positioning so that the baby is nursing well and sufficiently softening the breast. This is something that the lactation consultant in particular can assess and help you fix. And four, if baby is not nursing well, express your milk regularly by pumping or by hand expressing. I want to note this though about pumping is that pumping only expresses about 30% of what direct breastfeeding actually does. Baby is actually the best machine. And I lied. There's only four, not five tips. (laughs) The fifth tip was just that note about pumping. Tip number five. Direct breastfeed, don't pump. There we go. But also what goes hand in hand with preventing engorgement is, believe it or not, not everyone wants to breastfeed. However, your body didn't get that memo and it's still going to produce milk. Lucky for you, there are ways you can help suppress it or make milk production stop. And for you ladies who breastfeed for a few months and don't want to do it anymore, you can try these methods too. I often recommend using cold compresses such as the frozen bag of peas that no one really eats those. They're just in everybody's freezer for these purposes. Also, number one recommendation that just blows everybody's mind, cool or chilled cabbage leaves. These bad boys, I don't know what is in them, what type of magical powers they possess, but man, it dries you up like a drought. It, you just Place the chilled cabbage leaves on your breast and leave them on there until they're warm or room temperature and then you take them off. And that's that's literally all you have to do, but they work wonders. Also, another thing you can do is wearing a very tight-fitted bra. We don't need your boobies bouncing around everywhere, getting all stimulated and excited. Paired with that, avoid nipple stimulation, warm water running down them or standing face-to-face in the shower, letting the water hit your nipples, sucking, rubbing, etc. None of that. Avoid the nips. Don't free the nipple in this case. And you can also use anti-inflammatory medications such as ibuprofen. It helps with swelling, tricks the body into thinking, oh, hey, Let's not make our our boobs swollen, even though we like big boobs. Your body over time will realize you are not using the milk it has already produced, so it will not produce anymore. Supply and demand of the milk. Can't tell you guys how many times I got asked this, so let's go over the pros and cons of breastfeeding. Number one pro, availability. Pumps, bottles, formula, and other bottle feeding products can be quite expensive. Breastfeeding, completely fucking free. 
Breast milk doesn't require any prep work either. It's ready when your baby's ready. You are a living, breathing refrigerator and a dairy factory. It's great. Number two, can provide a boost for baby. Breast milk has all of the nutrients your baby needs to grow and stay healthy. It promotes a healthy digestive system. Breastfed babies are less likely to also have diarrhea and upset stomach. Formula can be a little bit harder to digest, harsher on the baby's digestive system. So breast milk doesn't come with that problem. It can also help strengthen the baby's immune system. Breast milk helps protect against ear infections, pneumonia, bacterial, and viral infections. Studies have shown it might actually boost their IQ level as well. Some breastfed babies may have somewhat of a higher IQ than formula-fed babies. Mm, Lucky for me, I can't imagine how much smarter I would have been if I would have been breastfed. Man, maybe I could have been a doctor, mom. Also may help prevent sudden infant death syndrome, which is SIDS. It's a phenomenon that happens somewhere between four and, and six months of age. This is where babies, for some reason or another, they suffocate in their sleep somehow or just die with unknown causes in the middle of their sleep. And breastfeeding helps them learn how to breathe and swallow properly so that they don't choke or on something like their own spit makes them smarter breast milk can also potentially protect against conditions like asthma allergies diabetes and obesity it's also great for development in premature babies that are in the NICU so we do i think a common conception if a baby goes to the NICU they're on formula only and that's not true Moms pump all the time and we give them breast milk. That's definitely not true. Another pro, it's not only good for baby, it's good as heckaroo for you, mom. It helps your uterus get back to pre-pregnancy size faster because we already talked about this in the labor and delivery, that oxytocin gets to go in, make sure uterus cramp back down like it should be. It also burns a shit ton of calories that can lead to weight loss. Let me tell you, that would be like the number one key thing that I'd be interested in, sadly enough. That's that's the main selling point for me on breastfeeding. It keeps your period from returning, which can prevent an iron deficiency after giving birth. It also allows your body to release hormones that can help you bond with your baby. Oxytocin, the love hormone, you know? It can reduce your risk of getting breast cancer, ovarian cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. If you do choose to breastfeed, your doctor will likely recommend that you do it for as long as you feel comfortable. The longer you breastfeed, the greater the health benefits are for you and for the baby. Now, with that being said, let's talk about cons because with everything, there are pros and cons. Cons are, although breastfeeding is healthy for you and your baby, it can be challenging. It is hard, and that's okay. You may feel discomfort, particularly during your first few feedings. There isn't a way to measure how much your baby is eating either. That's what is so hard. Formula, it's easy. You can see how much of the formula has gone from the bottle. Breast, you you really can't. There's no way to really know except for the daily weights that we do on the baby every night. You also have to watch your medication use, caffeine, and alcohol intake. Some things that go into your body are passed through 
your breast milk to the baby as well. And the big con, newborns eat like a bottomless pit. They eat frequently, nonstop, it sounds like, especially once they hit that 24-hour mark when their stomach starts expanding and that colostrum. Uh, while very high in calorie and nutrients, it's just very teeny tiny amount. It's not filling up their stomach. That's like me eating one of those mini donuts, very high in calories and has a lot, not of nutrients, but a lot of sugar and potential energy that I could use, but it's tiny. It's the size of like a golf ball. If I eat one of those, am I going to be full? No, I'm going to be hungry 10 minutes later and want to eat again. The same thing goes for babies. And wrapping up B for breast or boobie, another common breast related issue is called mastitis which is an inflammation of the breast tissue that sometimes involves an infection from either a clogged duct or bacteria entering the breast through a cut or laceration. The inflammation results in breast pain, swelling, warmth, and redness. You might also have an accompanying fever or chills. Mastitis most commonly affects women who are breastfeeding and antibiotics are typically prescribed if this is the case. Well, man, guys, B should have stand for babble because I have been babbling on about boobies for quite a while now. Let's move on to U, which stands for uterus. Now, this is one of the most important, if not the most important aspects of the postpartum assessment. It is crucial to a postpartum woman's health to ensure that the uterus is involuting as it should be after delivery or decreasing back down to normal size in human terms. We begin what we call fundal massages immediately after delivery, which is where the nurse will press very firmly on your abdomen to locate the top of the uterus, which is called the fundus. Upon location and palpation of the fundus, the nurse is looking at one of two things. One, how that uterus feels, whether it be soft or the medical term we use is boggy, or if it's hard and we call that firm in the medical world. And two, she's also going to be noting where the top of the uterus is located in relation to the belly button, such as above, below, to the side, and how far in finger measurements from the belly button it is. The uterus should be firm or rock hard to touch and be at your belly button or lower and continue to decrease at a rate of one fingertip below the belly button per day. If soft or boggy, this can put you at an increased risk for a postpartum hemorrhage or an infection. The most common causes of a boggy or soft uterus are vaginal deliveries. For one, your freaking uterus is tired as you are, especially if you've had a prolonged labor as well. Another cause is having what we call a precipitous delivery, which is where you're you go into labor and have a baby within three hours later. We already talked about in the labor and delivery episode that the average labor for a first-time mom takes up to 12 hours. So three hours is very quick for a first baby or just a baby in general. Another risk factor is being 35 years of age or older. Your uterus is older, so it's going to act like any older person would which doesn't act as well to exercise, and I'm 24 and I can already attest to that. Additional causes are obesity, having a large baby, or having had multiple prior pregnancies, which is where the uterus has had to stretch before. 
your uterus is simply exhausted from working itself so hard to be able to deliver the baby that it has no energy or strength left to be able to contract itself anymore sometimes after delivery. So it just goes soft or flaccid. Think of you going super hard at the gym and trying to squeeze in one more squat or one more lift and you just almost fall over or drop the weight on your face. That's exactly what the uterus is going through. It is a muscle. It has worked extremely hard for hours on end and it just is giving up. But how can you help make your uterus firm and prevent a bog uterus from happening? Number one, breastfeed. It stimulates oxytocin as does doing skin to skin with your baby. Empty your bladder fully and frequently. And we also might give you um, synthetic oxytocin, which is Pitocin, um, in your IV or through your IV after delivery. That just helps kind of harden everything up even more. Moving on, let's move on to the next B, which stands for bladder. The nurse often simultaneously checks your bladder at the same time she is checking on your uterus. If your uterus is above your belly button or off to one side, this can be a key indicator that you have a full bladder and need to go to the bathroom. For the first few times after you deliver, the nurse looks at your urine output in milliliters to ensure that you are putting out enough urine, especially for how many fluids you were giving, given during your delivery. This is especially true if you have had a C-section where the body tends to hold on to excess water when it is stressed. After you use the bathroom, the nurse will do another fundal massage and feel for your fundus to make sure the uterus um, is again centralized and below the belly button. Some women can have difficulty urinating during the postpartum period for reasons including having had a catheter, having an epidural, pushing for a prolonged amount of time causing swelling. Oftentimes in a postpartum unit, the doctors will have a standing order that they want to see the patient pee a certain amount of milliliters within a four to six hour period. This is one to prevent a postpartum hemorrhage but also to ensure that a woman is capable of emptying her bladder on her own. Some women ultimately have to end up getting another catheter if they aren't able to pee, and that's because we want the uterus to be able to not be blocked by the bladder and involute or contract back down. Because of a catheter, we will also be watching out for signs and symptoms of a UTI, which could be urinary frequency, feeling like you have to pee a whole lot, um, burning or painful urination, cloudy odorous urine, flank pain, which is back pain where your kidneys are located, and or fever or chills. And number one advice that was sent in by a friend who uh, peed her pants several times after delivery, she told me, hi, Kayla, <laughs> if you're listening, your baby's super cute. Um, she said, Go even if you feel like you don't have to. I highly 10 out of 10 agree with that because I can't tell you how many times I had to clean pee up off the floor from a lady not knowing that she actually had a full bladder and peed herself. It's I always say when you're getting up to feed the baby while they're already crying and mad, let them cry a little bit more. It'll wake them up even more, get all ready to go to breastfeed run to the bathroom really quick, pee, even if you don't have to, I bet you will be surprised at how much pee will come out when you do that. Let's go to the final B, opposite of bladder. Now let's talk bowel function. I think the top question I actually got asked this go around was, is it true that I have to poop before they will let me go home? Um, No, 
not where I worked. I truly don't know where this came about because I'm just so confused. Everybody asked this and it's not true. The main thing that we are more concerned with is if a woman is able to pass gas versus actually pooping. Gas means that your bowels are awake, active, and blood is circulating to the digestive system. Not being able to pass gas can indicate a problem, and yes, this could delay a discharge. You could very well not have a bowel movement until after you go home, especially if you've had a C-section. And this is because it takes the body's digestive system longer to wake up after going through anesthesia and or surgery. Not everyone also poops every single day for that matter either. So we don't treat everyone on the same shit level. That pretty much wraps up bowels. No, you don't have to poop before you leave, but yes, you do have to fart. So there's that. Moving on to L, which stands for lochia, which is the medical term for postpartum bleeding. A lot of women don't know is that you can have vaginal bleeding for up to six weeks postpartum and maybe even longer. This is the normal process for your body, continuing to shed the remnants of your uterus of pregnancy and get back to your normal period. Immediately after delivery, it will be bright red as the bleeding is fresh, and there could even be some pretty decent-sized clots. I'm talking as big as a golf ball or a lemon. We get concerned when clots are larger than the size of your fist and or are accompanied with heavy vaginal bleeding, which means you are saturating a pad front to back, side to side in an hour or less. Over the course of the next few days to weeks following delivery, the bleeding will begin to lighten in not only amount, but also in color. It will transition to bright red, to light pink, to dark brown, and then to yellow, to a white clear normal discharge. The bleeding can also come and go. It doesn't necessarily consecutively or constantly last during this time frame. This can also be normal. Now, signs or symptoms of concern with the bleeding or the discharge that you're having would be very yellow or green discharge with a foul odor. This can be a sign of a vaginal infection. Wrapping up L, moving on to E, which stands for episiotomy, lacerations, and incisions. Starting things off, episiotomy is where the OB-GYN or the midwife manually cuts the perineum, which is the area between the vaginal opening and the anus. It is used to widen the outlet of the birth canal to facilitate delivery of the baby and to avoid a jagged rip of the area. During an episiotomy, an incision is made between the vagina and the rectum. This usually This usual cut goes straight down and does not involve the muscles around the rectum or the the rectum itself. An episiotomy can decrease the amount of maternal pushing simply because the hole is wider, and it may also decrease trauma to the vaginal tissues and expedite the delivery of the baby when click delivery is needed. However, episiotomies are associated with increased incidence of extensions or tears into the muscle of the rectum or even the rectum itself. It's usually repaired by your doctor by stitching up the area after delivery, but I would say episiotomies are really not used in this day and time. We more so just let things kind of naturally tear on their own, which would be known as lacerations, which we're going to talk about now. 
Lacerations are similar to that of an episiotomy in that it is a rip or a tear to the skin from the vaginal opening, but it occurs naturally, not by a surgical cut using a scalpel. Vaginal tears typically occur when your baby's head passes through the vaginal canal and the skin can't stretch enough on its own to accommodate the baby. Lacerations can occur in one of two directions, actually, towards the anus, which we call perennial, and towards the urethra or the pee hole, and we call that urethral. Perennial is by far more common than urethral just because there's more pressure on the bottom part of the vaginal opening versus up top. They are also classified on a degree rating scale from first to fourth degree tears. First degree are the smallest tears possible involving the skin around the vaginal opening or the perennial skin. These don't always require stitches to repair and may heal on their own. Second degree tears involve the perennial muscles. These muscles are between the vagina and the anus. I would say first and second degree are very, very common. Um, I've actually seen a lot more second degree than first, to be completely honest with you, where they have to have a stitch or two to sew up the area. Third degree tears involve the area from the perennial muscles to the muscles around the anus. So we're getting a little bit deeper, closer to um, the anus at this point in time, but it doesn't involve the sphincter, the what actually opens and closes your butthole. These can require surgical intervention to repair and take months to heal. And a fourth degree tear is the most severe. It is a complete tear from your vaginal opening all the way through the perennial muscles, through the an- the rectal muscles, through the anus. Like it is a wide open tear between the vagina and the anus. These tears often require surgical repair, but they are very, very rare. It doesn't happen to everybody. Another, you know, um, related issue, while your nurse is down there looking at your bleeding, your episiotomy, your laceration, we're also going to probably ask you to roll on one side or the other and spread your butt cheeks apart. We're going to look for hemorrhoids at this point in time, which are very common to form while you are pushing for long periods of time during delivery. Hemorrhoids, for those of you who don't know, are sore, swollen veins that are around your rectum. They can be internal, which are usually painless, or external, which can be pretty painful. Symptoms include pain, rectal itching, bleeding after having a bowel movement, or even a swollen area around the anus itself. Hemorrhoids occur more frequently after a vaginal delivery than a C-section simply because you've been pushing. Treatment for hemorrhoids in the hospital or once you go home, one option is a sitz bath. Also helpful for pain from perennial tearing, but a sitz bath is a basin. You can also use a bathtub with a small amount of water where you sit to soak your bottom in warm water and Epsom salt. The recommendation is two to four times a day for 10 to 15 minutes. Witch hazel is also your best friend for everything. Apply witch hazel to the hemorrhoids to cool and soothe. You can apply with cotton balls or buy pre-soaked pads like tux pads. Hemorrhoid cream such as Preparation H you can buy over-the-counter as well as ointments and sprays designed to provide short-term relief. The other types of incisions, C-section incisions, 
During the C-section, your doctor actually makes two different incisions. The first is through the skin of your lower abdomen, about an inch or two above your pubic hairline. The second is into the uterus itself, which is where the doctor will reach in to deliver the baby. The type of cut on your abdomen may not be the same as the one on your uterus. Either will be one horizontal, which we call a low transverse incision or a bikini cut. It's used in about 95% of C-sections today. That's because it's done across the lowest part of the uterus, which is thinner, resulting in less bleeding, and also is more cosmetically pleasing because you can't really see the scar. The second option is vertical. This is known as a classical C-section, which is where you are cut down the middle of your abdomen, usually from below the belly button to the pubic hairline. It used to be more common, but it's now more reserved for specific cases, including if you've already had a scar there from a previous surgery, if the baby is nestled low in your uterus or in another unusual position, or if you have an emergency that requires immediate delivery for for instance, severe fetal distress or excessive bleeding due to placental abruption or something like that. Vertical incisions may be slightly more painful and take a little more time to heal because it does involve the more of the ab muscles, essentially. Now let's talk wound care. For both episiotomies and lacerations, we will give you what we call a perennial care bottle that you fill with warm water and you rinse yourself every time you go to the bathroom. It is not recommended that you wipe, but more so blot dry. We will also provide you with a numbing spray. My hospital in particular used a lidocaine spray and tux pads, which I already kind of mentioned. They're witch hazel pads that aid with swelling and inflammation and literal ice pads. They look like a period pad, but it turns into an ice pack. They're super cool. Your doctor will have you stitched up. If you have either of these and the stitches that are used are dissolvable and will dissolve within about a three weeks time. However, you might notice that they fall out before they dissolve and this is totally normal. C-section incisions usually involve an internal closing of the uterus and an external closing of the abdominal wall since there are two technical incisions used in a C-section. The internal closing of the wound is usually with dissolvable stitches as well but external can be with a wide variety of things such as staples, steri-strip tape, stitches, skin glue, or a combination of these. Staples or glue are the preferred methods because they are easy and leave little to no scarring. If you do have staples, you will come back to the clinic within about 7 to 10 days and have them taken out by a nurse. Some people that are larger in size or obese have trouble getting their wounds to close, so a wound vac or a wound vacuum is often used to close up their incision. The gases in the air around us put pressure on the surfaces of our bodies and a wound wound vacuum device removes this pressure over the area of the wound. This can help a wound heal in several different ways. It can gently pull fluid from the wound over time. It can also reduce swelling, which may help clean the wound and remove bacteria. And it also helps pull the edges of the wound itself together. So it may stimulate the growth of new tissue to help the wound close as well. You are able to shower about 18 to 24 hours after a C-section once we are sure that you are stable enough to do so. 
if your doctor has put gauze and tape over your incision, this is the part where, you'll, where you will finally get to take this off. It peels right off in the shower as well. It's pretty nagging and kind of annoying because it's a pressure dressing that's on there. Um, but it, it peels right off so easily when you get off the shower, get into the shower and just fully saturated with water. It peels right off so beautifully. Now, it's not recommended that you scrub your incision either. Simply washing with soap and water like normal and just letting that soapy water run over the incision is completely sufficient enough. And again, don't wipe, blot dry once you get out of the shower. We made it past bubble. Let's talk about heat. H stands for something called homensign or clots. When a woman is pregnant, her body actually makes more blood clotting factors, which ultimately helps prevent excessive bleeding during childbirth. However, it can put a woman at a higher risk of developing a dangerous blood clot because of this. In medicine, something called homensign can be a sign of something we call deep vein thrombosis or a DVT. A DVT is when a blood clot forms in one or more of the deep veins in your body, usually in one of your legs particularly in the calf region. Home sign is where a doctor or nurse extends a patient's leg so that it is straight, then pushes the top of their foot towards the patient's head while squeezing on your calf. If there is pain or tenderness in the calf upon doing this, there might very well be a DVT or blood clot. However, we cannot confirm there is a DVT without doing some type of diagnostic imaging such as a Doppler ultrasound, which uses sound waves to look at the flow of blood in the veins, it can detect blockages or blood clots in the deep veins. We are also concerned for a blood clot forming elsewhere in the body as well. If a blood clot forms inside of a vein after childbirth, the body may not be able to dissolve it. Sometimes this clot can break free from the inside of a vein and travel to the lung, known as a pulmonary embolism or a PE. Much less common, a clot can form in the arteries instead of the veins, and this can lead to a heart attack or a stroke. Very, very rare. I hardly see that. If I do see a stroke, it's because of someone's high blood pressure, not because of a blood clot. But now that I have you all worked up and everything, <laughs> perfect transition. Let's talk about E, which stands for emotional status. The very last and final thing your nurse is going to assess in, is your emotional state. Are you happy? Do you have a flat affect? Not Are you sad, crying? Are you uninterested, etc.? A fluctuation in emotions post-delivery can be very, very normal. And we like to call them the baby blues. The baby blues are caused by a drastic change in the level of hormones your body produces during pregnancy versus post-delivery, but they may be brought on by the demands of motherhood and the reality of the pregnancy ending or just a combination of everything. For women, the baby, baby blues pass quickly. They appear just after childbirth and are characterized by mood swings from feeling very happy to all of a sudden feeling very sad. A woman may cry for no reason or feel impatient, irritable, restless, anxious, or lonely. These feelings may only last a few hours or for a week or two after delivery. But for some new moms, they do experience a more severe, long-lasting form of depression known as postpartum depression. 
Rarely an extreme mood disorder called postpartum psychosis may develop after childbirth. Postpartum depression isn't a character flaw or a weakness. Sometimes it's simply just a complication of giving birth. If you have postpartum depression, prompt treatment can help you manage your symptoms and help you to start bonding with your baby. The most common signs and symptoms of postpartum depression, severe mood swings, excessive crying, difficulty bonding or having no desire to bond with your newborn, loss of appetite, insomnia, fatigue, increased anxiety, mental fogginess, and irritability. Now, more severe symptoms of postpartum depression are and should be taken very seriously. Hopelessness, thoughts of harming yourself or others, panic attacks, feeling worthless, shameful, or guilty. Please call your doctor if this is happening. We are always here to help you and we'll never turn a blind eye. I actually had a triage call not too long ago where the mother called crying saying she did not want to be in this world anymore and had a plan to kill herself. She was thought she was a terrible mother and that she and her husband were fighting nonstop and she didn't know what was going on with her, but she just didn't want to do it anymore. And I had to stay on the phone with her until EMS was able to get there. And just heartbreaking that the chemicals in the brain just can't balance out sometimes and hormones make you go into this completely crazy state of mind. And then of course being sleep deprived and having a no life sucking new baby in your life just really takes a toll on some people mentally. The postpartum phenomenon of postpartum psychosis, although less common, is a serious, serious mental illness. It occurs within a few days to three weeks after birth. It can actually occur as long as three months after birth as well. A woman with postpartum psychosis typically displays confusion or disorientation, obsessive thoughts about their baby, hallucinations and delusions, sleep disturbances, excessive energy and agitation, paranoia, and attempts to harm themselves or the baby. They are not in touch with reality at all. Do y'all remember that news story about the Florida woman who drove her car into the ocean and she kept hearing a voice tell her that if she didn't kill her baby, that someone else would, or something like that. Just, But it, she was in postpartum psychosis. She did not know what she was doing. She was not in touch with reality. This, to me, is even more heartbreaking than postpartum depression. Can you imagine like snapping out of postpartum psychosis and then waking up to a reality, a nightmare of reality at that? Oh my God, that's awful. Only thing I want to really add on to postpartum depression, baby daddies and family members, speak up to the new mother if she is acting off to you. A lot of the times, the women don't know how strange or different they are acting and they need someone to tell them that. And not only just tell them that, tell them, I know this is going on with you and I just want you to know that I am here for you if you need anything. That's the best thing that you can say and do. All right, well, you guys know what time it is. It's time to play Am I Overreacting? With our first question being, are you pro-breast or pro-formula? I am both, ladies. Let me be the first to say, 
It does not freaking matter and should not matter which way you choose to feed your baby as long as that baby is happy, fed, and healthy. Of course, breastfeeding is preferable, but for multiple reasons, both the new mother or the newborn are not able to successfully breastfeed. Some women have decreased milk supply. Some women have inverted or flat nipples. Some babies have a tongue tie and can't latch correctly. Some babies have very low blood sugars and require higher calorie formula to save them. Some babies have to go to the ICU and have a feeding tube. And you know what else? Some moms just don't freaking want to. Regardless of the situation, it is perfectly okay. I do not condemn or approve of any mommy shaming for women not being able to breastfeed. There are factors that are well out of their control sometimes and you making them feel shittier than they already do by criticizing their abilities and decisions. Shame on you. You do not have the right to critique another mother on how she is able to feed her child when you are not in their shoes. I have seen babies go brain dead from critically low blood sugars because women are so adamant about not having an artificial nipple or Satan's juice, which I call formula, touch their baby's mouths. I have seen mothers just have absolute meltdowns and feel like the worst mother on the planet because they're not able to breastfeed. I just feel like we need to not focus so much on forcing breastfeeding in today's society, but more so educating on all the various options of feeding babies. Did you know that in the last 10 years that the world of science has made formula almost identical to breast milk? How incredible is that in general, but even more so for these mamas that would love to breastfeed but can't and know that they have this option. To end this, before I go on an extremely long rant, breast is not best, fed is best. I will preach that until the day I die. Next up on the question list, how long do you stay in the hospital for and how early can you leave? Now, the average length of a hospital stay for a vaginal delivery is two nights and three to four nights for a C-section delivery. The earliest I have seen someone medically cleared and discharged from the hospital is 24 hours, no earlier, unless you're leaving against medical advice and your insurance doesn't cover your hospital stay if you decide to do that, by the way. If you do have any sort of infection risk, it is required that you stay exactly a minimum of 48 hours to ensure that no signs or symptoms of infection develop. However, the length of stay is actually more so determined on the baby. There are a series of newborn screenings and tests that have to be done, such as a hearing screen, jaundice testing, etc., and they can't take place until the baby is after 24 hours old. Of course, complications with both mom and baby can keep you both in the hospital for longer than expected, but if mom is having no issues and the baby is the one having complications, we will oftentimes discharge the mom and offer her the ability to room in. This is basically giving her a place to stay, but not having medical care or a nurse to take care of her, essentially. She would be in charge of caring for herself at that point in time. It would be like she's in a hotel of a sort, just within the hospital. If the mom is the one with ongoing complications and needing further monitoring, though, the baby will not actually be discharged until the mom is discharged. This is because the baby has to see a pediatrician within a given amount of time after leaving the hospital, and they obviously wouldn't be able to do that if their mother is trapped as a patient in the hospital. So 
we just keep them as a patient and have the hospitalist pediatricians continue care for them until they both can go home together. Next question is, how can I increase milk supply? Number one, stay hydrated. You should aim to have at least eight eight ounce glasses of water per day or eight cups of water a day. Eat a well-balanced diet. Breastfeeding moms need an extra 500 calories a day. You're a fully operating dairy factory. You need the energy for the production. Taking your prenatal vitamins can also help. It has a lot of great components such as DHA and folic acid. Nurse often and on demand like we have previously talked about. Let the baby feed fully on each side. This helps you know it to come in balance. Like If you're just constantly feeding on the right side, not the left, all the milk's going to come in on the right side. So you need to switch it up on the breasts a little bit. Eat lactation cookies and drink lactation tea. I've heard great things about those. And last but not least, you can use a breast pump. More stimulation, the better. I guess we'll end on this question, which what are some key signs and symptoms that are a red flag to watch out for in the postpartum period once I get home? The easiest way I can relay this information to you is to remember the acronym post birth. I'm all about acronyms here. It made my life so much easier in nursing school. All things listed in post are the things you need to call 911 for, while all, while all the things in the birth column are things you need to call your OB-GYN clinic about. P is pain in the chest and O is obstruction of breathing or shortness of breath. This may be an indicator that you are having a blood clot in your lungs or a heart problem that would need evaluation in the ER. S stands for seizures. This may indicate that you have entered the eclamptic state, the most progressive state of preeclampsia, which is where you're having high blood pressure, protein in your urine, and swelling, and it can offset you to have seizures. T stands for thoughts of thoughts or feelings of wanting to hurt yourself or someone else. Just like we talked about, this can be an indication that you have postpartum depression or even at worst, postpartum psychosis. If you are suicidal and do have a plan, I advise you to call 911 immediately and they will come to you. B stands for bleeding heavy or bad odor. Soaking more than a pad in an hour or less or passing a clot the size of your fist or larger could indicate you're having a postpartum hemorrhage. Bad smelling vaginal blood or discharge may indicate that you have a postpartum infection. I stands for incision not healing or increased redness or pus. This goes for both C-section incisions and episiotomies and lacerations. These are signs that the incision could be infected. R stands for redness, swelling, warmth, or pain of the calf. DVT, guys, blood clot. T stands for temperature of 100.4 or greater. This could also be a key indicator that you are having some type of postpartum infection. H stands for headache, blurred or double vision, spots or stars, or liver pain. This may be a sign of high blood pressure or postpartum preeclampsia. Well, that wraps up postpartum. I'm going to be talking about newborn care. I'm not going to make another two-hour video or two-hour episode this time around. We're going to talk about babies in the next episode. This was really just all about the moms. I hope you have a great 
next two weeks, and I will be catching you guys very soon.